Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through this epistle, and it's important for us now to open God's Word and to hear what He might have to say to us today. 2 Peter, we're in the first chapter. We will finish this chapter this morning. And in this letter, Paul is, excuse me, Peter is seeking to ground believers who are being attacked by false teachers. Chapter 2 will go into great depth of that. But Peter is addressing these believers and seeking to help them become firm in their foundations. They're helping them to become uh, rooted and grounded in truth so that when they are bombarded with the lies of the false teachers, they will be prepared for that onslaught. The passage was read to you, verses 16 through 21. If I were dividing it, I would say in 16 through 18, it's the eyewitness account. Eyewitnesses, the trustworthiness of eyewitnesses. In 19 through 21, it's the trustworthiness of the written word. And why do I say that? Because in the previous verses to this section, you will notice, if you're open to 2 Peter chapter 1, you will notice in verses 12 through 15, Peter says, I'm going to remind you of some things that you already know. He says, I consider it right for me to remind you of these things that you already know because as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that I'm going to die soon, verse 14. He's saying, I want to remind you because the things I'm reminding you about are true. And you're going to hear lies. You're going to hear lies about what it means to be saved. I want you to be grounded and rooted in the doctrine of salvation. That is what he's done in chapter 1. I want you to be rooted and grounded in the doctrine of sanctification. That's also been in chapter 1 and will continue into chapter 3. And I want you to be rooted and grounded in the believability and reliability of the Scriptures. And that is our passage for today. Trustworthiness. Of eyewitnesses, trustworthiness of the written word. I want you to be rooted and grounded, and I, I remind you because, number one, I was an eyewitness. I and the other apostles were eyewitnesses. We saw that in the verses we looked at last week, verses 16 through 18. I was an eyewitness to this doctrine that the false teachers are attacking, this doctrine of the second coming of Christ. I was an eyewitness to a preview of that doctrine, of that truth. We did not teach you cleverly devised tales. We did not teach you fables. We did not teach you myths, he says. That's what the false teachers do, and that's what they accuse us of, but that's what they do. No, we speak from our experience. We speak from what we saw on that mountain where we got a preview of the glories of Christ. We got a preview of the fulfillment of Daniel 7 where he will come in the clouds one day. We are reliable witnesses. We saw that with our own eyes. And today, he says, but there is a 
testimony that's even more sure than that. And that is the reliability or the trustworthiness of the written word. I told you last time that these are the two approaches that would be used by both a defendant and a prosecutor in a trial. Eyewitnesses and documents. Eyewitnesses, what did you see? What did you hear? What happened? Tell us your account. Documents, evidence, contracts, emails, text, whatever, to be used to prove something. I want you to I want to remind you of these things because I'm going to die soon. And usually it's the last words of somebody that are the most important to him. These are truths that I want you to be rooted and grounded in because they were witnessed by me and others. And it's God's revealed word, his truth, the scriptures. And so we're talking about the Bible this morning in this passage. The Bible and the authority of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible. It's so important because it's the Bible that is continually being attacked, and you know that. In 1980s, uh, there was a, a Congress on inerrancy where many scholars and, and theologians, conservative scholars and theologians got together and said, let's come up with a statement on inerrancy because there's so much confusion about what inerrancy means without error in the Bible, what that means. And they settled that in that Congress, and they signed documents, and they put it out there, and many churches adopted that, and everything went well for a generation. A generation is what, 30 years or so? And then it's back on the scene again. And you're getting the people who, people who attack the Bible and attack the, the, the reliability of the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible and say it's not inerrant. It can't be. You've got human authors involved in it. How can it be without error? Many don't want it to be infallible. Many don't want it to be breathed out from God, inspired by God. They don't want that because that means accountability. That means that I've got to submit to it. That means it holds authority over me, and the pride of man will not let him do that. And so you come up with all these people with all their attacks on the scripture. And, and let me just give you a quote of a couple here. A French philosopher said, all good intellectuals have repeated since Bacon's time that there can be no real knowledge but that which is based on observed facts. He's attacking the Bible. He's attacking supernatural things that happened in the scriptures. He's saying it's myths and fables. John Adams said, this would be the best of all possible worlds if there were no religion in it. Once again, attacking the authority of the Bible. One women's liberationist said, a woman, her name was Elizabeth Stanton, she said, the Bible and the church have been the greatest stumbling block in the way of women's emancipation. Many, I could go on listing many who have called it a book of lies. Many who have called it myths and fables and uh, fantasies and all of those things. And yet here we are gathered here to hear it taught. Yet you got up this morning and came to church because you want to hear the Bible and you hunger and thirst for it like I do. I know why you come to this church. You come here to this church the same reason I do because you know we're going to talk about the Bible when you get here. I want to know, you know, I want to know deep down, God, that this is real. I want to know deep down that this book is true. 
and that I can base my very life on it. I want to know that, God, in my heart and in my mind. And I don't think this passage this morning answers all the questions we might have. But it's like one commentary I read. There are 2,000, 2,000 verses or passages in, and passages in the Bible where the Bible claims that the scriptures that are written down are God's words. 2,000. One German theologian said he's going to take out all the myths, what he considers to be myths of the Bible, the supernatural stuff, the kind of like the Jefferson Bible where he took out all the miracles. Well, this guy was going to take out all the things that he thought were the myths of the Bible. He ended up with 27 verses when he was done. His word stands forever. That guy's dead. All those people are gone. His word stands forever. And here you are, and here I am, gathering this room this morning because we want to hear it. We thirst for it. We delight in it. There's something that God's done in our hearts that draws us to it. It's not just some intellectual exercise for us. No, we know that the Spirit of God speaks through it. We read His words and we know, and something rings true in our heart, and we say, Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. We believe, sure, the evidence is all there. By the eyewitness accounts, we believe these were trustworthy men. We saw that last time. Trustworthy individuals that God called and used and had the integrity and the usefulness and availability to God to be used by Him. And we see it sweeping through denominations, don't we? You know, the problem with denominations and why they collapse Many denominations is because they moved away from the authority of the Scripture. And they cave in immediately to the culture when they do that. They just cave in. They have no conviction of anything. They put their authority in the latest cultural issue that's popular or something. And they collapse. And they're divided. You remember in the Garden of Eden, all the way back, this was the issue. First, Satan attacked the character of God. God's not good. God is not good. He's depriving you. He's not giving you something that you need. He's keeping you from something. He planted that thought first in their mind, and then he started to get them to doubt God's word. Hath God really said Hath God really said that? And pretty soon, you know the results, and here we sit. (laughs) So, Satan is attacking the trustworthiness of the Bible. He uses false teachers to do that, and that is what Peter is addressing in this letter. The accuracy and the authority of the Bible. And Satan doesn't have many, many weapons. He just keeps the same things, repackaging the same things every generation, different ways. This passage contains not just a a teaching about the inerrancy of Scripture and about the uh, dual authorship of Scripture and things like that, but he also has in it a call to... 
uh, ethical obligation. You see that in the, which verse is it? It's verse um, uh, 19, you do well to pay attention. It's not just, it's just not just so I can go out and win a debate this morning. It's not that I can just go out now and, oh, I've got inerrancy down now, and I got dual authorship down, and I got these issues down. I'm going to, this is not about winning a debate this morning. Many people like to debate the theology, but they don't like to pay attention to the theology that they're debating. They like to talk about it. They'll take great notes on it, but they don't want to pay attention to it in their daily life. And that just undermines your argument, my friends. That just undermines your argument. This is not about debating something. It's easy to fight inerrancy and not obey it. Not obey the Bible. So, trustworthy of the apostolic witness. We saw that last time. What you're holding in your lap is a trustworthy, or on your phone, wherever, is a trustworthy revelation of God. These, these apostles adhere to that. And everything you're holding in the scriptures that are in front of you are trustworthy as well. Turn over to chapter 3 of 2 Peter. He says this again in chapter 3. This is now, beloved, verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere way, excuse me, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. See that? You see that? Who's speaking? Men are speaking. God's words. God's words. Words spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. The words we have of the prophets are God's words. The words we have of the apostles are God's words. The purpose of this letter, you can go down to 2 Peter, go down to verse uh, 3, go down to verse 17, 2 Peter 3, verse 17. There, you therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. I'm about to die. I won't be here any longer. I remind you of these things so that you will not be taken away by unprincipled men who teach you errors. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, we're going to look this morning at verses 19 through 21. And this is a clear text on biblical inspiration. This is a clear text on the dual authorship of Scripture. Dual authorship, what I mean is God and man. God using men. Verse 19 says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Let's just stop with that phrase for a moment. 
I would divide this up by saying we start with the certainty of the prophetic word, we go to the demand of the prophetic word, and we go to the source of the prophetic word. So we're now in my outline here, the certainty of the prophetic word. It's certainty. You see in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Made, by the way, is in italics. I have a, a New American Standard. Your, your translation may not include it. Other, my translation does. That is in italicized because it means it's not in the original. It's not in the original. It's a supplied word. The original readers did not need that word to understand what it meant. For some reason, the, the writers of the New American Standard Bible felt that it was needed there. But let me tell you what that literally says. Literally. And we have more sure the prophetic word. Did you hear that? And we have more sure the prophetic word. So whatever this means... We have more sure the prophetic word. Nothing made it that way. It just is. The sure word of God. Some want to say that more sure means that it's more sure than the, excuse me, it's, it's more sure than Here's what it means. It's more sure than the experience that Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what I believe it means. Peter said, I had a great experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, but here is a more reliable source than my experience. I can verify the truthfulness of what I'm telling you by my experience, but if you don't want to look at my experience, look at the more sure word. That's what he's saying. Some people say that, and this is important, you'll hear this view, okay? Some people say, and this is a possible view, I'm not saying it's not, but some people say that Peter's and James and John's experience on that Mount of Transfiguration from verses 16 through 18, their experience made the word more sure. You follow me? In other words, experience verifies the word. See what's wrong with that? Experience is what verifies the word. I need something to verify the word. The, the original doesn't say that, and we have more sure the prophetic word. Nothing makes it more sure. It's more sure because it's more sure. By our experience, we have made the word more sure. It's what that view says our experience validates the truthfulness of the word Jesus predicted his second coming we saw a preview of it on the mountain we had an experience that experience verifies Daniel 7 verifies Old Testament prophecy and I say that's possible but I don't think the rest of the context goes there, and I don't think the literal interpretation of the verse goes there at all. The literal in supports the view that says, hey, as good as our experience was, verses 16 through 18, the prophetic word is more sure than our experience. Don't you meet people like this? Experience over the word? experience up here, the word down here. 
If I haven't experienced it, it must not be in there. That must not be what it means. You see what that does? Scripture, the experience does not validate Scripture. This would be saying that as strong as the, as the Word of God is, there's something stronger. My experience. So God says the word is sufficient source of truth. It's inerrant, it's infallible. It doesn't need to be helped along by our experience. I think all he is saying is, what I told you first, there's a more reliable source than my experience, Peter's saying. Now, I think experience can sometimes help make the word more understandable. The, student, the experience can somehow uh, give greater insight to the one that's had the experience when they go to the Word with it, but the Word is sure as it will ever be, and I don't ever believe that God elevates our experiences over His Word. Notice in verse 19 the word we, I just want to point to that, because we up until now has been used to refer to Peter, James, and John and the apostles. Now it's a collective we. It's not emphatic anymore. It's now referring to all of us. We, the church. We have a more sure word than our experiences. The word is more reliable source than the experience of anybody, even the apostles. Peter seems to be saying, hey, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe my eyewitness account, verses 16 through 18, go to the scriptures. Just go to the scriptures. And I want to say something too about the word prophetic. You see that in this verse. The word prophetic. Uh, prophetic word you see uh, in other verses along here. Go down to verse uh, you see in 19, prophetic word. You see in 20, the word no prophecy. For in 21, you see prophecy. Don't think major and minor prophets here. Don't think that way about this. This is being used uh, to refer to all Scripture, all inscripturated words of God. It's, it's not just the prophecies. It's certainly being used to refer to the Old Testament in Peter's context here, but it's, it's the total word. It's the, because most, if you, was, if you wanna just take the Old Testament for example, it anticipated the Messiah. Everything was a picture, it's the picture book. To pointing to the reality. So, embraces all of scripture when you see that prophetic word. The word just carries a prophetic tone. It points to the Messiah. In John 5, 39, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. You search the scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Referring to the Old Testament. 
Those testify about me. Luke 24, 37, but they were startled. This is after the resurrection of Christ and Christ is walking on the road to Emmaus. It says, they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. From Genesis to Malachi, all about me, it must be fulfilled. And I think this extends to the New Testament as well. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Then he says, just as our... Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Paul's writings are referred to as the scriptures. That's New Testament. So we're not talking just about Old Testament, but by extension, we're saying prophetic refers, is synonymous with all the scriptures. So all of these speak of God's written revelation. Any prophetic word, that book you're holding in your hand this morning, any prophetic word is more sure than human experience. It's a more sure word. Continuing in verse 19, notice this makes a demand on us. The more sure word makes a demand to which you will do well to pay attention. Verse 19, to which you do well to pay attention. So we have a prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. To which modifies the word the more sure word. He says, you do well to pay attention. You take heed of it. It's a more sure word and you should take heed of it. You should obey it. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's so much that they weren't paying attention to it. If they weren't paying attention, he would have probably put this in the form of a command. Pay attention to it. He says, you do well to pay attention to it. It may be one of those excel still more type verses. You're doing it, do it more. Since it's not in the imperative. It is good for you to be paying attention to it. It's the idea. Maybe false teachers are coming along saying you don't need to pay attention to it. Maybe false teachers are coming along saying experience matters more than the sure word. False teachers are coming along saying, hey, uh, you know, read this book over here. Give all your time to this philosophy over here. Oh, it mixes well with the Bible. You'll see Bible words in this philosophy or this book over here. He says you need to take heed to this word. And this is Peter's last words again. He says, I remind you of this. I may have told you about this before, but I say it again. I'm going to be dying soon, and these are my last words to you. Take heed to this word. 
Now, it's interesting, he's saying, he's saying, take heed to it, pay well attention to it. He's not saying there's anything wrong with studying the Bible, but I think sometimes we can just study the Bible and store up knowledge in our heads and not really take heed to it. I think sometimes people accuse us of worshiping the Bible at this church because we hold it so high. I think some people say we're um, bibliolatry, Bible worshipers. And sometimes if you start taking the Bible serious, people will accuse you of that. Consider it a compliment. I'm taking the Bible serious. Because so many don't take it serious. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And we cannot separate the God of the Bible from his words. We just can't. These are his words. And I just can't be casual about it. And that's what most want to be. It's just casual about it. They don't want to take heed to it. They don't want to pay attention to it. It's the more sure word. It's more sure than any experience you're going to have. Pay attention to it. Pay close attention. Hang, the idea of hang on every single word of it. And then he gives this metaphor, this word picture. As a lamp shining in a dark place. He, he likens the word to a lamp or a light. A lamp shining in a dark place. When someone is in a dark place, what are they, their focus is on the light that they have to, to navigate through that dark place. You look to the lamp, you look to the word to navigate in the darkness. You, you, Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That's just another way of saying it, right? It gives me truth. It, it gives truth. It gives revelation of God, who God is, to a dark world. The word Dark is a word that has changed in meaning over the history of the word. It started out with dry, parched, dirty, dark. Well, all those, all those words describe the world in which we live. All those words do. It's a perverse and crooked generation. We're to shine in this perverse and crooked generation brightly. And, and you can't see the truth until the light shines. The lamp is the more sure word. In MacArthur's commentary, he calls it a nightlight. That's a good way to say it. It's like a nightlight. And it's only needed when it's dark. Because you see the word until in your, your Bible? See the next word, until? It's only temporary. It's not saying that the word is temporary. The word is eternal. It is just simply saying the need for the lamp is temporary. Because notice, notice in the verse, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, there's coming a time I won't need the lamp because I will have 
the light shining brightly all around me. It's a reference to the second coming of Christ. You pay attention to the lamp until you don't need it anymore, and that will be at the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting how he breaks that down. Day dawns, the sun begins to rise. The morning star is that first glimmer of light. Venus is sometimes called the morning star because it's the first light in the sky just prior, just prior to the sun rising. It's called light bringer. In this sense, I don't think you make a distinction between the sun and the morning star because in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus, the root of Jesse, the branch of the line of David, the bright and morning star. So I don't think you make a distinction there. I think you're just talking about all the events, all the prophetic events at his second coming. And it's at that time that I won't need, I won't need Bible study. It's at that time I won't need to deal with sin. It's at that time I won't need a light because it'll be blazing glory, blazing light. The sun, S-U-N, sun, S-O-N, will be shining brightly. He says it will rise in your hearts. And I think those who are maybe alive at that time, when they see all of these events unfolding, they who have been living in the light of the second coming, they'll be seeing external changes all around them, but they will also experience internal things as they all of a sudden begin to see the thing I was starting to doubt would ever happen is coming true. An excitement. There'll be an effect on the hearts of those who see this. And then let's go down to verses 20 and 21. This is where we come to the source of the moisture word. He says, I tell you to pay heed to it because it's from God. I'm not trying to tell you to pay heed to Peter's experience. I'm not trying to tell you to pay heed to anybody's experience. I'm not telling you to try pay heed to any of what the false teachers say. I tell you to pay heed to this more sure word because it comes from God. He tells us the source of it all here in verse 20 and 21. But know this first of all, of primary importance, used in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. 1 Corinthians 15, when he's going to tell them of, of first importance, let me tell you the gospel, explains the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, he says, this is a priority. He says, this is a primary importance. He's saying, this is the starting point. He says, believe this of first importance. But know this first of all. Believe this. That no prophecy of Scripture, uh, there's that term prophecy of Scripture talking about all the written word of God is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, and word interpretation is a little difficult here. When you think of interpretation, you think of Dan, uh, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and Daniel interpreting dreams. It's not interpretation in that sense. It's basically, it's, um, it's something, it means this, that no prophecy of Scripture was something that came to their minds. It's totally different. Interpretation might not be a good word to use here because we think that we think one way when we think about that. I don't think they knew many times they did not know what the words were they were saying, speaking, writing. 
It wasn't like they were robots writing this down, but they didn't have complete understanding. We saw that back in 1 Peter. They were looking into these things. They were, they were prophesying about. They were engaged. They weren't passive to this. But it wasn't something that originated in their minds. It's not something that they're the source of. Prophecy of God's truth does not have a human source. The reason you need to take heed to it and pay attention to it is because it's not from man. It's from God. He makes it even clearer in the next verse. He says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. See, if you thought that maybe one of these prophets or apostles was having this quiet time one day, and he said, hey, this thought must be from God. I'm going to write it down. No. It didn't come from him. That's not how this happened. You know, I don't know. This passage does not tell us how the transmission of Scripture happened. We're not given that information in detail. But he didn't sit down and say, hey, I think I'll just write some scripture today. No. I feel inspired. I feel so inspired. I think I'll just write these things down and call it scripture. No. I listened. I wrote. That's all we can say. It's not a result of human understanding. It's not a result of human imagination. It's not something that was spun by the um, decisions that originated in the mind of man. Instead, he says, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They were moved or they were carried along. It can mean born along. It's not an act of human will, but men spoke from God, men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He gives us some insight into what happened here. They were born along by the Holy Spirit, by the means of the Spirit, not their own interpretation, not their own volition, not their own mind. The only source of Scripture is God, God the Spirit. The instrument he used were men, to write the scriptures. The scripture has dual authorship. But one of those authors is primary, the other is an instrument. And the primary cause of scripture is God. The instrument he uses was man. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men carried along by the Spirit of God, moved along by the Spirit of God. The word is used in Acts chapter 27 when the shipwreck scene for the Apostle Paul, they unload the boat, they do all of these things and decide to let it just go its course. They decide to let it just be carried along. 27, 15, 27, 17, carried along carried along by the wind. And so the same way the ship is carried along by the wind to go to its destination, wherever the wind blew, the boat went. And that's that's, uh, 
similar to what we're saying here. Men were born along by the Spirit of God. And, and, and this would break down in the one sense that a, a ship doesn't have heart and emotion and personality. You don't push it too far because these writers had heart and emotion and personality and they were carried along. But God providentially oversaw, superintended everything about the inscripturation of his word. Putting his word into the scriptures. There was diversity in these writers. You read Paul, you get a logical approach to things. You read Peter, you get a, a different bent on it. You read the other apostle, the other writers, the other prophets. It's personality. 40 plus writers, thousands of years of writing, consistent message, consistent themes. God superintended their lives. He superintended where they were born. He superintended how they were educated. He superintended their personalities, their styles. He superintended all of that. But he did not quash anything about them. He did not turn them into robots to just sit there and mindlessly put something on papyrus. There's diversity in all of these. But the Lord oversaw this. God spoke through these men and he maintained their personality and their vocabulary. But you say, well, Luke wrote it. Yes, and it's the word of God. Or John wrote it. Yes, but it's the word of God. Some say if there's a human author, I said this earlier, some say if there's a human author, there has to be errors. That is not true. That is not true. The Spirit of God oversaw this. Poor Spirit of God, he can't keep something under control. No, he did. He can't keep error from creeping in. He did. Doesn't mean just because humans were involved that it's filled with errors. Primary cause, instrument cause. Primary cause is God, the instrument cause is man. Listen to this verse from Matthew 21. Excuse me, Matthew 1, 22. Matthew 1, 22. Now all of this took place, birth of Christ is the context. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Here it is. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. God's words through the instrument of a man. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. This is all from Isaiah. There will always be false teaching that tries to take the, the word of God down a couple of notches and say, oh, it's got errors because, no. It makes claims, my friends. It makes claims. It makes claims. And their, their pride and their hatred of accountability to it I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, I believe is at the heart of their rejection of it. Luke 170 says this, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. You accepted it for what it really is, not the word of men, but the word of God. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Inspired means to breathe out. Actually, the word was expired. It was exhaled. Exhaled. And what happens in the English mind when you hear the word inspired? You think what I said earlier. You think that men were inspired, so they wrote a chapter of the Bible. They got inspired somehow, and it kind of came from them. No, it's not the men who are inspired. That's not the point here. It's not the men who were exhaled. It's the words that were exhaled, breathed out by God. They they were moved. It's not I was inspired to write a song or I had a great mood that day and I was inspired. That's all nice, but that's not what this is. God's thoughts, they came straight from him. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, equipped and prepared for every good work. The the false teachers, you, you read in Jeremiah, it's interesting, you read in Jeremiah, they say things from their own imagination. They say things that are from me, but they're not from me. They say things are gonna happen and they don't happen. And they don't have the more sure word like we have. We see statements like this in the Bible. My word is in the mouth of the prophet. My word is on the tongue of the prophet. I will use them like my mouth and they will speak my words. That's the true prophets, the true apostles. Hear the word of the Lord, the Bible says. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. The prophets said, the prophets foretold. You get the point. I know I'm speaking to the choir this morning. I believe you all came in here believing this today. Peter says, I remind you. I don't make apology for reminding you. I remind you because there are those who, many who attack these things. I want to know it's true, God. I want to, I want to know it's a more sure word. I want to walk in obedience to it and take heed to it. And God has proven over and over again his faithfulness to his word, his promises to his word. What we read this morning are the words of Peter. Yeah, words of Peter. Words of God, right? Words of God. This is what we believe. This is what we stand on. This is what we hold to. We don't deviate from this in any way. We believe because it's inspired by God, breathed out by God, that it's infallible. It it can't ever have errors. Infallible. It's without errors. It's inerrant. It has authority over us. We have a high view of the Scripture at Grace Church because of these truths that I've shown you this morning. We have a high view of Scripture. I never want to use this pulpit to give you my opinion, my imaginations, my experiences. I want it to be the sure word of God because this is what is able to equip us, to build us up, to make us stronger, to help us recognize error more easily because we know truth so well. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then I guarantee you, you don't have the capacity to believe this book. You don't have, you don't have the, the spirit of truth to guide you into the word of truth. 
Your, your starting point is not to simply get into debate over whether it's true or wrong, but your, your, your starting point is to repent of your sin, your pride, and embrace Christ as your substitute for your sin who paid the penalty for your sin. Because if you die without Christ, you will face an eternal hell. And your only hope is to be rescued from that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our invitation to you this morning if you're here without Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in him, our invitation to you is to do that. To do that. And let God open his word to you as you move out throughout your life. Let me pause for a moment. Maybe you want to do that. I'm going to pause for a moment before I close this in prayer. If that's something that you have seen the need for in your life and you want to talk to somebody after this service about it, man, I'm available. One of the other elders are available or there may be another believer in this church you know that you can go talk to about it. But of first importance and primary importance is that you know Christ. And secondly, is that you know his word. But you can't know his word until you know Christ. Father, thank you. We praise you. And I just want to pause now, God. And if there's somebody in this room this morning that needs Jesus, I pray that in this moment of silence that they would put their faith and trust in him. God, we are so grateful that we have a book, that you did not leave us in the dark. You've given us the lamp to help us see how to navigate through this dark and dirty world. You've shown us how to live. You've shown us how to come to you, and you've shown us how to worship you. You've shown us everything we need to know. It's complete. There's no new revelations. It's the once and for all delivered to us by the apostles and prophets, truth. We stand on it. We make no apology, God. We make no apology that we come here each week and open it and teach it and proclaim it and study it. We make no, problem. We make no apology that people may say we worship the book. We don't worship the book. We worship you. We are so thankful to you, God, that you are the one that superintended the dual authorship, superintended the writers of this book as you and your spirit worked in them, moved them along. I understand why Peter would want to let this be his last words because God, we need truth in a world filled with lies. We need truth in a world that is dark. We need truth to stand against the false messages we hear every day and are bombarded with every day. We thank you for the hope that we have because of Christ. We lift up his name this morning. We make much of him. We make much of him. We love you. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.